This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guest are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed, strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Our freshwater systems are vital to our way of life, our environment and our communities. We know that certified freshwater farm plans are on the horizon, but that's as much as we really know at this stage. How do the freshwater farm plans benefit our farmers, growers and our waterways? I'm this week's host, Katie Rodwell, and in today's episode, we're focusing on getting to grips with understanding freshwater farm plans. Whilst it's also a little bit grey, today we have Kate Scott to walk us through where we're at. Kate is an Executive Director of Lampro, an environmental and survey consulting business. She's a firecracker, she juggles many balls, and has also just recently been presented the Rabobank Emerging Leader Award, presented at the Farm to Fork event we had in Sydney a couple of months ago. So it's an absolute pleasure to have her with us. Kate, uh, great to have you on the podcast today. It's um, always a pleasure to be able to speak to you and sneak some time into your diary. At the beginning of all of our podcasts, we like our guests to introduce themselves to our listeners. So could you just start us off with giving us a bit of insight into your career and your current role at Lampro today? Yeah, thanks, Katie. Look, it's a uh, real pleasure to be able to uh, spend some time with you this afternoon to chat about a few things. So in terms of my background, I started out with a geography and political science degree and from there kind of came into the resource management space and started out doing a lot of work, particularly in the primary sector. And then from there, my husband and I decided we would quit our day jobs working um, and I was in uh, the environmental space and he was in engineering and we decided we were going to go and milk cows. So we shifted from uh, Taranaki, which is the heart of dairy and country, all the way to central Otago to milk cows. So that was a bit of a, a shift for us, but it was uh, in the start of an amazing opportunity in terms of my career and the opportunities because not long after we worked together on farm in the interest of a long marriage, I decided there was probably a, uh, a reason to uh, look for work outside of the farm gate <laughs> and that's when Lampro was born. So Lampro is just uh, celebrating its 16th birthday. So that's a pretty um, amazing uh, feat in my view um, to have started out and grown from a team of just myself through to uh, I think current headcounts around the early 70s on our team. So that's been quite some substantial growth in that period of time. But in terms of the things that I do every day, I guess I think I've probably got the best job in the world because I get to uh, sit down and work alongside farmers and growers every day just to help them to navigate all these regulatory challenges that are on their horizon. And I get to do that with a bit of a strategic perspective. So helping them to plan for the future and and to ensure that they not only have really successful businesses, but to also ensure that they're able to deliver really great outcomes for the environment. So I tend to do a really broad variety of things these days, whether that's advisory to other agribusinesses or into um, government, or also, as I say, working alongside farmers 
to help them um, navigate the change piece. Amazing. Wow, what an impressive growth over 16 years. Where's most of that growth come from, Kate, just out of interest? It has been varied, to be fair. So we have a very um, diverse business. So we have we refer to ourselves as an environmental consultancy business. So we have, you know, planners, surveyors, water quality scientists, hydrologists. Uh, we have, interestingly, an aerial survey division. So they're the people that get all the cool toys. So they have aeroplanes and sensors that go inside aeroplanes. And then we also have a, a geospatial part to our business as well. And look, the growth, to be fair, has probably come primarily in that planning and farm environmental space most recently, but the back end of that is, you know, the aerial survey part of our business, whilst it's only a relatively small part, it's delivering a huge amount of really valuable information to help us solve a whole variety of um, different problems. And I guess, you know, the aerial survey team are operating uh, not just regionally, but they operate right throughout the country and even overseas from time to time, whereas our consultancy services are really delivered at a more regional scale. But you know, there are a number of us that also work nationwide in that space. And what's your favourite thing to be doing? Like, What's a day where you're like, yes, I've had a wicked day. What are you doing in a, a day of Kate Scott? A great day is a day when I've managed to help solve some really complex problems for people. So whether that's sitting down and having a chat and they're not quite sure where they're heading from a direction point of view or there's a a lumpy problem from a planning or regulatory perspective or sometimes I find even in my role being you know almost a jack of all trades it's just that being able to actually help people to navigate what's in front of them and so those are the days that I come back feeling really energized that we've actually found a wicked solution to a really wicked problem and and that's kind of what motivates you to keep getting up and doing it every day. Amazing. Kate, let's start at the beginning. We want to talk about freshwater farm plans here and they've talked, they've been talked about lots over the past few years with little information and probably insight into what they're actually going to look like when they need to be done. And without diving too deep into the weeds here, can you just cover off for us where are we at with the freshwater farm plans? Yeah, look, what might be useful just um, without delving into the weeds, but a little bit of context is that Back when the current government decided to undertake some freshwater reform back in 2020, they introduced a raft of changes, including national policy statement updates and national environmental standard updates. And on the back of that, there was um, written into the RMA the requirement that all farms moving forward would have to have this thing called a certified freshwater farm plan. And so since that time, you know, we've all really been sitting while uh, we're waiting for, you know, the various departments, regional councils to actually come up with the, well, what actually are these things? When are they going to be deployed? And, and how is that going to operate? And we're still waiting for those regulations to be enacted at present, although I'm of the understanding that they're meant to drop very late this month or very early next month. And so, you know, I think, The pause in time has probably been a good thing from my observation because had they have tried to have rolled out what's a really complex system on day one, I think that that probably would have fallen very flat. And I guess the proof will be in what actually lands over the coming weeks and months as to how successful the rollout of those and what the system actually looks like. So when we talk today about certified freshwater farm plans, to some degree we're talking without all the facts in front of us, and that's because the actual regulations haven't landed. But 
based on consultation and other, you know, broader engagements that I've been involved in across the sector to understand what these mean, you know, can inform some of my comments around, you know, where they're looking to head with these. What we do know is that whenever these freshwater farm plan regulations are enacted, that there's likely to be a phased rollout of these plans across the country. And we do know that Southland and the Waikato are going to be the two areas that will be the first cab off the rank and then other regions will follow in due course. So that's kind of the the win. And look, if I was placing some bets, my bet would be that we're probably going to see these start to be deployed from perhaps early August onwards and then over a period or number of years as each region uh, has to have their turn around rolling these out. On the back of the fact that we don't have all the facts in front of us today, can we just start with why are these so important to our country and to our farm businesses? Yeah, that's a really good question and it's something that I encounter often is the lack of certainty at the moment is often a roadblock for many because people don't want to start until they have some confidence that what they're going to have to deliver is going to assist them with, with an end outcome. And I guess uh, from a government point of view, they've implemented an approach that's intended to effectively um, provide a pathway for managing the effects of our land use activities on freshwater. That, that's the fundamental purpose of those. And there's probably two different camps as to whether a regulatory or a non-regulatory approach is the most beneficial. But my view is that, you know, we can't change it now because they've been enacted. So we've got to find a way to work within that. I think the reason for having them, there's probably a number of reasons. One is ultimately we want farmers to be enabled to document the great things that they're already, you know, in many cases doing on farm. And and that helps with a compliance and assurance quality perspective. But I think the other thing I would comment on is the fact that if we start to think about a regulatory approach, you know, often I hear the the comments around the kitchen table of, you know, I don't really want to do this because someone from central government's telling me to do it. And what I find is if we step back and we think about, well, actually, what about if, if it's not just the government that are telling us to make these changes or do these things? What about if we think about it from the context of, you know, the person who's sitting offshore who wants to buy your wool or buy your meat or buy your milk, that they're actually the people that are wanting confidence and certainty that you're doing the things that you say you're doing from a farm plan point of view. So I think we've almost got two purposes here. We've got the regulatory piece on the one hand, and then we've got the consumer-driven piece on the other hand. And I guess what I'm a little blind about at the moment is not knowing how the, for example, the processor assurance programs are going to interplay with the regulatory compliance piece that's going to fall out of certified freshwater farm plans because they have slightly different drivers in my view. And I think there will very much be, you know, crossover and I'm, I'm confident that we're going to be able to avoid duplication. And I think, you know, so long as we have that middle ground where we can have scope for a farmer to frame a plan so that it's delivering value for them in their business without it being overly prescriptive. So, you know, perhaps these are the minimum things that you must include in your farm plan, but what colour you make it and, and how detailed or um, not detailed you choose to make it should be fit for purpose for your business and I think we've got to make sure that whenever we get to the delivery piece we're actually keeping the farmer at the centre of this conversation around the farm plan because it needs to be their farm plan and it needs to deliver value for them and their business. 
Yeah. We've talked about on quite a few of the episodes that we've had today around transparency and I feel like this is what comes to mind to me in terms of what that actually looks like. So we had an episode with Julia Jones around ESG and she talked about the need to have better transparency across supply chains. Likewise with Dave Maslam, he talked about his their brand partners saying we want to be able to see in depth what you're doing on farm. This for me, if you remove the regulatory piece, looks like that's what they mean by transparency, documenting what you're doing and giving assurance that we can see changes and, and benefits in the practices that we have on farm. One of the questions I did have was that you just said earlier that there were some different drivers between what farm assurance programs would need versus these certified farm plans. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I meant by that was when, for example, you might be um, working under a process approach, for example, um, NZ FAP Plus is a, is a great example where farmers are signing up to deliver across a spectrum of different environmental drivers within their farm. So, you know, NZ FAP Plus doesn't just look wholly at fresh water, it actually looks at biodiversity and, and, and a whole range of other things that a farmer can be looking to enhance within their farming business. Whereas the certified freshwater farm plans are very narrow, they're the regulatory piece that's only looking at the, you know, what are the outcomes you're seeking to deliver in terms of improving or enhancing water quality. That's kind of the difference that I mean, because the consumer's not going to just want to look at freshwater, the consumer's going to want to make sure that you, you know, look after your animals and you have a high standard of animal welfare and you look after biodiversity and you look after freshwater and you look after your people. So it's that more integrated perspective, I guess, that an assurance or a consumer-led approach delivers compared to a, a wholly regulatory one. And look, based on some of those comments from Dave and Julia in, in your previous episodes, look, I agree with them that what this enables us to do is it's, it's the proof piece. You know, we've got so many of our farmers doing an amazing job. How do we make sure that we can actually document and evidence that so that they can have confidence that the people buying their products know that that's what they're doing and, and, and it's that assurance quality piece that sits in the back end. So on a recent episode we did with Erica around farm plans, what's the difference between a certified freshwater farm plan and an integrated farm plan? And if you're thinking about doing both, which do you choose to do first? How do you navigate that? That's a really good question. And look, it's something that Erica and I spend a lot of time talking about because we've both been involved in doing a bunch of work in the integrated farm planning space. And look, in my view, um, ultimately, I, look, I think it's fair to say it'll be messy as certified freshwater farm plans roll out for the first time. But ultimately, the concept of integrated farm planning probably resonates more fully with me because at the end of the day, we operate our farming businesses as, as a holistic approach and we don't just focus on, on a narrow topic. And so in my view, moving forward, a person will have to have a certified freshwater farm plan component and that will have to be certified and audited. But that may just be one chapter of a broader integrated farm planning approach. So your overarching, let's call it the overarching plan being the integrated farm plan, the certified freshwater farm plan piece is just one small component of that. And it, in my view, is likely to end up, you know, these are the bits that I send off a certification, but that doesn't prevent me from taking a, a more holistic approach to how I'm going to deliver farm planning within my business. And I think in terms of the where do you start with that, it's, you know, I've got a great example for you of a client that I've been doing some work with who, they're a sheep and beef farmer, so they had 
NZ Fat Plus requirement through their meat processor. They had a requirement for a farm plan through their regional council. They also happened to have the requirements for a bunch of ongoing consent compliance and monitoring associated with irrigation. They needed a bunch of consents for intensive winter grazing. And guess what? Now they need to have a certified freshwater farm plan. And so this is one farm, admittedly it's quite a large farm, but one farm that had five or six requirements for information that we're all wanting, not exactly the same, but very close to the same. And so in that scenario, our role has been to work with that farmer to help them to effectively coordinate all the different bits of information so that when they have an audit, whoever's coming along, they can find the information and they know that it doesn't really matter who's coming in to look at it, they've got it all there. So our role is more the the coordinator in that space. And our advice to people is don't throw everything out and start from scratch. You've, you know, if you've already got a health and safety plan, how do we bring that all together into a chapter of a of a larger integrated approach? In the same way, if you've already got a biodiversity plan, you know, how do you bring that into it? Or if you've got a whole bunch of stuff covering HR and people management within your farming business, you know, start with what you've got. I think the perspective of let's start again is never going to get us there. We need to think about these farm plans as a continuous improvement approach because we're only going to get, you know, better and better doing them every day. And, and that's no different whether you're in a farming business or whether you're in a business like Lampro. You know, we have systems and processes and procedures and plans that govern our business and they're not perfect on any given day, but we're working on getting them better every day. And I think that same mindset will help us to navigate what can feel quite overwhelming when we think about farm planning or the different constructs of that. Going back to the certified freshwater farm plans, do we know what's going to be part of the mandatory requirements? Like, Have you got any insight into what that might be? I've got some high-level insights to that, and that's based on what uh, the Ministry for the Environment came out and did some consultation on. The main components of a certified freshwater farm plan that they're intending to cover off are things like you're going to have to start with you know, a risk assessment, so understanding you know, what are your inherent risks, so what are the things that are risks within your business that you can't easily control, for example, soil, uh, climate, topography, all those things, and then what are the, the management risks so what are the things that you do that are within your control that uh, result in a risk profile so so a risk assessment is going to be a that was likely to be a component of a certified freshwater farm plan so once we understand our risk frameworks then uh, the next compulsory part of that is identifying actions so what are the actions that you are wanting to undertake to mitigate the risks that you've identified and to actually help to deliver better freshwater outcomes. So those are the kind of the, the two main premises of what a certified freshwater farm plan is likely to contain. But inside of that, the detail that we're still waiting to receive is, well, what other compulsory information is there going to have to be? You know, we, we know that you're going to have to include details of your farm business and probably who your manager is and what your contact details are. The other uh, compulsory bit that's set out is also covering off the catchment context. So not just looking at what happens inside your farm gate, but what also happens outside the farm gate within your catchment or your sub-catchment. So we know that catchment context is going to have to be defined by regional councils and, and they will probably each have a slightly different approach to how they determine that. So that will be a process in and of itself. And, and in my opinion, I think what we're going to find is our 
our first generation of certified freshwater farm plans will probably be a little bit, you know, less detailed from a catchment context point of view because every region is in a slightly different space in terms of where they're at with implementing new or updated land and water plans to meet the national policy statement for freshwater. So the amount of catchment context information that's available will, will vary from catchment to catchment and region to region. And so I think our first generation of plans are going to look quite different to our subsequent ones where, for example, a region might have subsequently gone through, say, limit setting, and therefore there might, in fact, at that point be really clear guidelines for what a catchment needs to do to deliver improvements to water quality, and, and therefore you can look to apply that to your actions within your farm and within your catchment, whereas the first generation plans, we're probably just going to have to work with the information that we've got and who knows where the regulations will actually drop. But my view is when we're having conversations with farmers is let's start with the things that we can control inside the farm gate because we know if we're trying to reduce sediment in our waterways that that's also likely to contribute to a better outcome from a catchment point of view as well. So the, how do we try and eat the elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. Do you have some examples, Kate, of where working in a catchment has been really beneficial? Because I know that the kind of catchment context is it's becoming more of a kind of catchphrase. Everyone's like, talk about, you know, catchment groups, catchment groups. What what are some benefits of that? Yeah, look, I'm very fortunate to be involved with um, both Thriving Southland and Waiwanaka. So I have a really um, good firsthand knowledge of the benefit that groups such as those two organisations are bringing together for landholders within a catchment context. So uh, certainly if I talk about Thriving Southland, you know, Thriving Southland is very much embedded in that ground up approach around giving farmers the tools to actually facilitate change based on science. So a lot of the work that they've been facilitating has been taking science, understanding it at an applied and local context, and then giving farmers the tools to make those farm systems changes. Or, you know, an example being one of the one of the projects was, you know, looking at how might or where might you place sediment traps as an example. So just giving them really practical tools that actually help to solve some of the big problems. And I think catchment groups are a and a really important part of the solution to how we actually roll out the change piece. And, and that's for a couple of reasons, but one of them is they provide a huge amount of community connection. So this, you know, bringing people together for a for a common cause and, and this feeling of support and that, that a farmer's not having to do this stuff alone. And I think for me, the social benefits and the, and the social outcomes that come from bringing people together is, you know, I think for me, that's one of the, the greatest outcomes that we see from catchment groups. But Catchment groups are also run by hugely committed people and, you know, they are actually the ones that have to live this every day. So they're the ones that are going to be able to advance the most from a progress point of view as opposed to, you know, we can't just roll out experts everywhere because we aren't the ones that have to live it every day. And I think that collaborative approach that catchment groups allows is going to be, you know, a significant part of the solution moving forward because it's these farmers' communities and it's their natural treasures, their toanga, that they are protecting when they're all coming together to do, you know, great things for their local communities. It also feels a little less overwhelming when you've got a group around you. I know my life motto is get people around you, you know, the more brains, the better. So it sort of does take away some of that kind of angst around, I've got to do this all on my own. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
I think you made mention to it just earlier in the episode, but often we hear, understandably, you know, farmers saying they don't want to do anything until they know exactly what the regulations are going to look like so they don't have to double handle and do things twice. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, look, I think there's probably two components to that. The first being, is there a regulatory risk to your business? So, for example, we've heard heard a lot of chat around the fact that uh, some people have chosen not to proceed with obtaining consents for intensive winter grazing, and as an example, because they're frustrated, rightfully so, but they're frustrated with the rollout and the process associated with that. And look, my advice to people is that ultimately they're the ones that have to decide what the right risk profile is for them in their business, but my role is really to give them the knowledge and the information and the tools to ensure they run a compliant business. And so we usually would start a conversation, well, what's the greatest risk? So if you are, you know, doing intensive winter grazing on on 100 hectares, then I might say to you, look, your greatest risk in your business is actually intensive winter grazing. So perhaps you want to consider getting a consent or making sure you've got intensive winter grazing plans. So, So we might start there. Then what we would look at is saying sometimes you just have to start because it's actually way easier to make a start today than to actually put it off till tomorrow. And I think from what I've observed so far, certainly the ministries involved with the rollout of certified freshwater farm plans, they have been quite clear, certainly to the information that I've received, that they don't expect people to throw out what they've already got and start again. So if you've already got a tiaki plan or you've already got a beef and lamb plan or whatever it might be, just start with that. And I think, you know, the the step that we'll be going through with a lot of our clients is once we have the regulations, well, you know, let's start with a bit of a gap analysis. What have you got today? And therefore, what do you need to be able to, to get to achieving certification going forward? And I think we're going to have to have a staged approach for implementation because, you know, there's certainly not enough practitioners operating out there to deliver all of these plans on day one. So I think it's going to be a let's get started and just start one step at a time. And I think we sometimes trip ourselves up thinking that we have to have the perfect plan right at the beginning. Whereas actually, if you start with that, as I touched on before, that perspective of, you know, I'm going to be continuing improve, continuing to improve this every day, then we can actually make a start and know that we can get better and shape it as we go. I think probably when we come back to certified freshwater farm plans, um, one of the things I didn't touch on, but is likely to be a compulsory requirement is, you know, some decent farm mapping. Start with some decent farm mapping because actually understanding your landscape is probably one of the most um, important steps you can actually start with. So, you know, what does my property look like? You know that you've got a waterway over here, but what happens if I look at it in a bigger picture context of landscape and understanding those different management units and how they all come together? Because when we actually start to understand that, it's going to inform the risk profile and it's going to also inform what are the actions that I'm going to take? You know, am I going to do some riparian planting or am I going to do some other action that's going to deliver an outcome? And it, it means that we can be focusing our dollars that we have to spend on mitigation in the right place rather than just burning money and not actually delivering better outcomes. So I think being really deliberate about that will be an an important part of successfully rolling out certified freshwater farm plans. Mm, And I think progress, no matter how small it is, still progress. So know that like the goal isn't perfection, right? It's just to recognise the progress, celebrate it and keep taking those steps forward. Kate, Um, Before we wrap up, what's your take on the future of these plans and how they will evolve, and specifically the certified freshwater farm plans? 
if I start with the, the certified freshwater farm plans, uh, what we're all probably waiting to understand is, you know, who can prepare them, who can certify them, and what's the process for having them certified and audited. And I think that's probably the, the first thing that we need to get our head around once those regulations drop, because there's going to be some, probably some gaps around what that looks like. So I think starting with that. In terms of the future piece, as I said before, I think we're going to, we're going to have to get some runs on the board to start with. So as I say, those first generation of certified freshwater farm plans, I think will look quite different to um, what the subsequent generations of plans look like. And I, we haven't really touched on it here, but, you know, the how do we move towards digitising these? You know, the intent is that these plans will be digital in time. If I come back to that example of the farmer I gave you where we, he's got five or six requirements, you know, that's an example where if we can actually bring together this information, the farmer's information that they should rightfully own and have control over access to that, but you can collect it one time and share it multiple times, then I think that's going to be part of that evolution of where they head to. But I, I think probably I think the process will be a little clunky for the first 12 to 18 months as everyone tries to get familiar with what this looks like. And I think that's going to apply whether you're the regional council trying to determine what catchment context is and identify who can be certifiers within your region, whether it's uh, you're a person that is a farm planner who is trying to understand what things you now need to have in a plan and the value that you can continue to add for your client, whether you are now needing to certify or wanting to be a certifier and what qualifications and skills and, and approaches you need to adopt for that or even the auditing piece, you know, who are all the players, I guess, in this new environment? And I think for me, we should all be making sure we put the farmer at the centre of this. There's no one individual that can deliver all of these things. We need teams of people and we need to make sure that the farmer is always at the centre of that because that's going to drive the best outcomes for the business, the best outcomes for the environment and the kind of the best outcomes for the community. So that's probably my, my key focus is how does we keep the farmers centred to that and make sure that it's adding value to them. Yeah. Kate, just before we um, finish, any last sort of tips or tricks or where would someone go if they were like, how do I know when my when I'm going to have to have a certified freshwater farm plan? Who's going to tell me? Where do I find the information? Where do people go? Yeah, so that's part of the slightly grey information that we don't have a, a great degree of visibility on yet. But I think it's fair to say that we know that Southland and the Waikato are going to be the two regions that roll out first. Beyond that, I would expect as soon as those regulations drop, that regional councils will be identifying which subcatchments within a region, because Southland and Waikato are both very big areas, you know, they will be having a plan for which subcatchments they deploy first. And I would expect that between regional councils, advisors, industry bodies, that they will all be doing their very best to inform farmers of their timeframes and their obligations in that space. In terms of the where you go to, I don't think we always need to automatically assume you have to engage an expert to start the process. There is so much information that's available out there in terms of free resources, whether you're going onto a Dairy NZ website or a Beef and Lamb website, or you are going to your advisors who might also have uh, references. Just kind of, you know, start to get familiar with your property and the information that you probably already have and the thinking about the things that uh, you want to achieve. So if I'm a, I'm a farmer and I'm thinking about my environment and the issues or the challenges that I've got on my farm, then the sorts of things that I'd be thinking about is what are the mitigations or the actions or the things that I know I can actually do that are within my control to have a better outcome. 
And, you know, whether that's fencing a waterway or whether that's doing some planting or whether it's looking at sediment traps or whatever it might be, there's so many things out there, but just make a start. Amazing. I think also something that we don't talk about that much is that, like, good environmental stewardship can actually be good for business as well. Like we forget that those good environmental practices can contribute to the productivity or the profitability of your farming system. So good to remember that amongst the angst at times. Kate, thank you so much for your time today. As always, it's really valuable to spend some time with you and and get some insights. It sounds like we might be needing to do another recording once we have a little less grey. So maybe in a, in a couple of months when things are kind of landed or, or a bit further down the track, we could get you back on and have a, a dive into some of the more practical elements of the freshwater farm plans. Thanks for having me along and yeah, look forward to uh, catching up with you again when, when we do know with some certainty what's going to be required of us all. When the rubber hits the road. Yeah, exactly. Cool, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Great to have you and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Katie. See you. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rabobank.co.nz.